My first uh, memory personally of burnout, I think of um, Ellen and Mallory, two high school classmates of mine. Uh, they were presidents of like student organizations, both in varsity sports, high achievers, right? Popular girls dating the popular guys, right? You know, accepted to elite colleges. I have this vivid memory though of gym class uh, one day and I was overhearing a conversation between the two of these gals and they were talking about how much time they spend on all the things and how driven they have to be to master everything, hold it all together, meet the, the, the demands on them. I remember seeing like a crack in the veneer for just a brief moment on their face, a sadness, like a malaise. We're so young, we're like in high school. And I think that's a picture of burnout, right? I felt the pull strong myself in high school and college. You can be whatever you want when you grow up. Just make sure you stay busy at it and master it, right? Yeah. In my uh, pastoral studies uh, and as a, a young minister of a church that I helped found, I felt the pressure to master all the skills of the minister and the entrepreneur. Oh, gosh, it's double. You know, master, master sermon writing and creative advertising, right? Yeah, oh, okay, I'll try. You know, be the best church on the block with a unique mission statement. Nobody else can have your mission statement because it's so special and unique. Master church growth or else your church might die. Ooh, you know. So um, there's uh, a theologian, Willie James Jennings, who's at Yale, and in his book, After Whiteness, Jennings observes that the pressure for mastery is built into the American education system, the thing that forms young people in this country. This pressure, Jennings argues, traces its roots back to slave masters and their sons. Jennings tells the story of the emergence of higher education in North America in colonial times and how it was actually born out of the need for an aging first generation of white plantation owners to pass on their plantations and their slaves to their sons. Do you know that's how North American higher education began? Yeah. They needed a system of values transmission to turn their sons into what Jennings uh, calls the self-sufficient man, embodying the three qualities of a slave owner, possession, control, and mastery. Today, though we might be unaware of it, this horrific legacy of whiteness in American education remains pressuring us toward mastery. And this is one of the big contributing factors to the 500-year story that we started talking about last week. If you were here last week, um, it, well, I'm going to review a few things about our 500-year story, or if you're hearing it for the first time, this is what we're talking about all fall. The story is how time has sped up. Modernity is a story, this 500-year this, this uh, project of the modern world is a story of constant acceleration and achievement and innovation, and in order to keep up, time has to be lightened of substance and higher values so we can move fast. If it's too heavy, you can't move fast. The justification of slavery and exploitation for the sake of an economy is the ultimate example of empty, light time. Fast, but evil, right? 
with speed rather than substance as the goal of modern life of these 500 years, the conception of a good full life is busyness because that's what keeps us moving fast. And we have a love-hate relationship with this because yes, busyness exhausts us and exploits people, but it also kind of excites us because when we're busy, we feel in demand. Oh, we, if only we could only hate it, but we also kind of love it. We are trained young in the ways of accelerated modernity to stay busy, attaining mastery, consequences be damned, so we can feel like we have a full life. Now, increasingly, people uh, become aware of the emptiness of this, right? And we, we hear that, and we all immediately are like, oh, God, is that the truth? Like, I don't want that to be the truth. We see the emptiness. We see the injustice of busyness equals fullness. And we cry out for a need to respond, to break free of this. We, we, we increasingly see people acknowledge we are burnt out, and we are not just going to stay on this hamster wheel. We are unjust, and we are not just going to stay on this hamster wheel. We're going to make a change. And that is so, so good. So I want today to visit what our scholar sources for this series. I'm going to have Melissa drop the, the um, links to learn more about our sources for this series in Discord again. What, what these scholars believe is the most natural, instinctive response to burnout in our wider culture. That we're going to talk about this today. This natural response is not bad at all. And it's, in a, it's a lot of ways, it's good. But it is incomplete. And it actually can lead us to double down on busyness and acceleration if we're not careful. So before we're done, I'm going to point us to a core theme in the teachings of Jesus that I think will serve us better. But it's important that we first talk about this most natural response to burnout in the modern world. Because it's so natural, we hardly notice it. It's behind everything we do. This natural response, in one word is authenticity. Hmm. Authenticity's response to burnout sounds like you got to take care of yourself. Prioritize self-care, right? Do what you need to do, not what others are telling you to do. Be true to yourself. Speak your truth. Find your truth. Behind all of those kind of messages is an appeal to authenticity, which says that the worst thing in the world is to be a hypocrite or a captive to duty and conformity. Because those are so inauthentic. Those are the worst things in the world. What is good, authenticity says, is to strive to be an individual, transparent and true to oneself. This is the ethic behind all other ethics in the modern world. Some of us will have uh, thick ethnic or fundamentalist religious backgrounds, maybe moderating that a little bit for us personally. But other than that, unless you remember life pre-World War II, and I don't think any of us in this room do, this is likely the dominant ethic for you personally. That's right. Authenticity is so foundational, it encompasses boomers, Gen X, millennials, and Gen Z. We're all in that boat together, huh? So often we're talking about how we're different. This is, this is going to be a boat that we're all in. Charles Taylor, one of our scholar sources for this series, calls the time we live in the age of authenticity. The age of authenticity began with the 1960s Cultural Revolution, when the boomer generation 
post-World War II, came of age with more prosperity and leisure time and education than any group of youth in the history of the world, and they dethroned duty as the highest ethic in the land, replacing it with authenticity. Think the move from the generations that lived through the Depression and fought in World War I and World War II, and how important duty was to them against such existential threats, right? Duty, that is what, what drove people. Think the move from that to the generations that protested the wars in Vietnam and in Iraq and protested the proliferation of nuclear weapons. That's the move from duty to authenticity. And the reason I love this scholar Charles Taylor who talks about this, who explains this for us, is because he sees this move as neither all good nor all bad. He doesn't have the vibe of like a crotchety old guy saying, in my day, people had morals, right? We're not, that's not what we're talking about here. Nor does he have the vibe of a nameless Silicon Valley egomaniac saying all change is good change, right? We don't have either of those vibes here. The, the age of authenticity is wonderful and challenging. Taylor doesn't see the age of authenticity as a loss of moral virtue, like we got it from celebrities and it's just sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He sees it as partly sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And it's so much more than that, too. The age of authenticity is a legitimate moral vision that prizes the individual and transparency and is critical of groupthink and too much polish. It deserves to be respected. It's a key ingredient to civil rights and justice and inclusion movements that are so important to our church. It's progress in a lot of ways from the age of duty that it took over for. It's kind of fascinating. Authentic is a compliment people often share with me when they appreciate this church. And yet, Authentic is also behind why 40% of our country gives a thumbs up to Donald Trump because, according to them, he tells it like it is. Isn't that fascinating? Authentic is behind both of those things. So let me bring this to why authenticity is specifically not enough of a response to address our societal burnout. It can push against conformity and duty. That's a good thing. It can have a prophetic edge against dehumanizing workplaces or oppressive institutions because it empowers us to take self-care into our own hands, self-definition of who we are and what we're about into our own hands. That is good. But one last quick history moment. Something horrible happened to authenticity just as it was about to replace duty as our reigning ethic in the 1960s. Anyone ever seen the show Mad Men? Yeah? We've got some people. Basically, Mad Men happens, okay? <laughs> so advertisers and marketers in the 1960s realize, you know what sells so much better than duty? Authenticity. It sells so much better. Duty, the duty to support the prospering post-World War II economy in America, well, that can sell a new car and a new washing machine to a white suburban family. Awesome, let's do it. But authenticity, the pursuit of being authentic, that can sell a new car and a new home appliance every year to the same family. Oh, man, does authenticity sell. 
The average person today sees between 4,000 and 10,000 ads a day. And the pursuit of authenticity is behind every single one. Be your true self with this. <laughs> More, faster, bigger, better. Ascend, ascend, ascend. Be your true self. Endless growth, right? The laws of acceleration and free market capitalism now govern our pursuit of authenticity, not just the pursuit of profit, including our most authentic efforts at self-care. Our self-care can always be more optimized, right? It can always be more convenient with this new product or app or service, right? The freedom to authentically care for ourself is ironically wearying. Because with the laws of acceleration in charge, being authentic is not as self-determined as we think it to be. The only way to answer the question, am I being authentic enough, is to get recognition from other people. So we have to perform our authenticity for others, finding better ways to express it to more people. We're kept in constant motion. And so authenticity's prophetic possibility to cut against dehumanization and exploitation, that possibility was blunted forever when it became high priest of the American consumeristic engine by the madmen. And that's why authenticity isn't an enemy. It's a good thing, but it can't save us from societal burnout because it's been co-opted and enlisted into the service of the same authorities driving our busyness, our bigger, better, more, faster capitalism. Even if we are perfectly authentic, the shape of a good full life in modernity is still determined by busyness, by acceleration. It's the shape of a profit chart showing endless growth. You know what I'm talking about? Ascending forever. So, if authenticity isn't enough, take care of your own self-care. Be true to yourself. You can fight against conformity and duty. That's good, but it's not enough. Then what is an alternative vision of fullness that can save us from busyness equals fullness? Jesus presents a different shape of a good life. Not a profit chart ascending forever, but the shape of a valley. Sort of like we sang earlier. Jesus taught, unless a grain of wheat goes into the ground and dies, it remains a single grain of wheat. But if it goes into the ground and dies, it bears much fruit. If any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who, want, those who lose their life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit us if we gain the whole world but lose or forfeit ourselves? When Jesus' disciples are in an ego-measuring contest, they ask him, who is the greatest of the kingdom of heaven? Jesus calls a child whom he puts among them and says, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. In Jesus' first century Roman world, because of high child mortality rates and a hyper-patriarchal society centered on dominance and mastery, there's that word again, children were considered nothing. Children were considered soulless even until the age of seven in the Roman world. And yet Jesus presents the nothingness of children as a model for his disciples. Jesus' vision of the shape of a good life What's the shape of it? Is not ascend, 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 keep growing forever, but a valley with life on the other side of it. Resurrection after death. Well, that has something to do with the story of Jesus, doesn't it? Fullness of life in this case is not marked by our busyness to keep up with the speed of life, but by our courage to stay in the present even when that is difficult. It begins not with our mastery or coolness or authenticity, but with our valleys, our humility, our lowliness, our nothingness. And therefore, it is founded in unconditional love. It's not founded in recognition or achievement or meeting a standard or a demand. It's founded in unconditional love. It recognizes that life can be hard and it won't always be happy. It doesn't pretend that there are no deaths in life, but it also doesn't coldly interpret those realities saying a distant, mysterious deity must have allowed this for some reason. No, it, it points us to the God who is like Jesus, who knows failure and death and doesn't run from it, but goes through it because resurrection comes after death. This God enters into not our mastery, but to use a word from one of our theologian sources, Andrew Root, in this series, this God enters into our negations. Do you know this word, negate, to make nothing? This God enters into our negations, our failures, our sufferings, our deaths, our valleys. Our negations are the opposite of our mastery. The things that destroy us, that negate us, that make us feel like nothing. God enters into our negations and negates the negations. God makes nothing the things that make us feel like nothing. That's resurrection after death. My first ever spiritual experience in which I felt God helping me grieve after losing my mom to cancer is God negating a negation. Cancer threatens to crush my future, but I was not crushed. That's the shape of resurrection after death, and that is, according to Jesus, the good life. It's difficult emotions too, right? But somehow don't we all know the good life includes difficult emotions, right? Who are we to think like ascend, 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 grow, 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 more, 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 better, 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 happy, happy, happy all the time? That's not the good life. We know that. This is the same shape that is all over our universe. It is hiding in plain sight in the turning of the seasons. Fall, 
winter, spring, summer, resurrection after death. In the way muscle builds by tearing and reforming, resurrection after death. In the way new galaxies begin when a star dies, resurrection after death. This shape calls to us, even though so much of life seems so closed and it's tempting in our secular age to assume everything is just material and explainable, still this shape calls to us because it's hidden everywhere in plain sight. Maybe resurrection comes after death, as unexplainable as that seems. Modern life convinces us that we have to run from the negations of our life. It convinces us It convinces us that if we just keep going and growing, even like good messages about like growth, discipleship, as they say in church settings, if we just keep doing that forever, we'll be happy. It just keeps us like on a never-ending treadmill for the next thing, you know, thinking that we're moving forward because we're burning so many calories, but we're on a treadmill, so we're just staying in the same spot. Accelerated modern life has co-opted authenticity as its high priest. And so busyness keeps us on that never-ending journey for the next mountaintop high escape, right? Or the next mind-blowing sexual experience. Or the next perfect vacation or brilliant life hack or whatever to just try to run fast enough to, you know, pursue our most authentic selves that we outrun the negations and the deaths but we just never can outrun them. Authenticity is great, but it cannot save us from societal burnout. For that, we need a different vision of the shape of a good life. And I think resurrection after death is a very compelling shape. So jumping off of Jesus' encouragement um, to come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. This is what we were jumping off of last week. We talked about how we all need an alternative timekeeping to run alongside modern life. Modern life is moving fast, and it's keeping time for us to say, keep up, stay with the pace, and we need an alternative timekeeping. We need communities to do this, to keep a sacred time which is low burden, but heavy time. So filled up with connection and purpose and intentionality that it can't move fast, it's heavy. But as a result, we can actually stay present in it. Sacred time opens us up to the divine, to the God of resurrection after death. Keeping sacred time is not a direct addressing of personal burnout symptoms like a workout, uh, like a workshop, workout could fall into that category. It's, it, it's, it's not direct and it's not personal. It's indirect and it's communal. But in this way, I believe sacred time treats the disease and not just the symptoms of societal burnout. Communities keeping sacred time together are readily stirred with love for one another. They enter into one another's stories, the valleys and the vulnerabilities. They see those who are hurting and oppressed the most. And they find themselves willingly doing this. We're drawn to do it for each other. We welcome God there and we negate the negations of life. 
I remember maybe the worst year of my wife Kezia's life, working as a teacher in a school that demanded mastery to the maximum power, and certainly demanded that she keep up with the accelerated pace of life. She was burnt out, she was emotionally abused by a supervisor, she felt like a failure. And I remember it was January, and we just were not sure how she was going to get through to the end of the school year. And then our community showed up. One afternoon, half a dozen friends came over to our place and helped her grade hundreds of assignments to get back to baseline. And then there was a prayer time after church on a Sunday when several friends came around her and listened to her as she cried her exhaustion. And they welcomed God's spirit to be with her, praying for her, negating the negation of that horrible year, making nothing the thing that made her feel like nothing, bringing about resurrection after death. Without communities doing this for us, the only prescribed response to our negations is just to outrun them. But inevitably, it will just compound our burnout. And that's why this is not our fault. We're not talking about burnout all fall because we all need individual, personal plans to overcome it. We need community. Because this isn't our unique fringe issue. This is something that we can only battle together. So what communities have kept sacred time for you is a question I want us to think about. Could be Brownline Church. That'd be awesome if BLC has helped do that for you. I hope we're doing that for you. Could be other communities too. That's awesome. We try to normalize the patchwork that community is for people. Maybe you have a primary community and some secondary communities. And BLC could be either one. That's great. Could be a primary community for you. Could be a secondary community for you. Who is helping you keep sacred time that is low burden and heavy? Not heavy burden and light so it can move fast. Who's helping you do that? My sense is that we all long to have the kind of community experience that I described Kezia having. Am I far off in that? I don't think so. But often, we may feel like we can't seem to find it, especially if you had it in the past. You feel like you just, oh man, remember when I had that? Now it's just gone forever. That, that's even worse. It's better, no, it's not better to have loved and lost than to have never loved before, I guess, in that case. <laughs> oh, it just feels so like elusive. We can't have what I just described. What's important to recognize is, without realizing it, we all, by virtue of being modern people in this modern world, presume it is busyness that will help us find that kind of experience. We feel reassured when our calendar is busy with community events or self-care experiences you know, on that calendar. We feel reassured. We feel reassured when a community or a church like BLC is that way too, with a busy calendar, full of calendar items that we can put on our own calendars. BLC is sometimes reassuring in this way, sometimes disconcerting. I hear both, depending on who I'm talking to. But of course, 
we're so busy that we often can't make it to as much as we aspire to. And then a vicious cycle kicks in and we feel a strong urge to either A, apologize for not keeping up with church attendance because it would be inauthentic to not acknowledge that, right? Or B, it activates an internal shame response for your inauthenticity, which means you don't apologize for it, but you just try really hard to avoid future shame. Both of these turn into an imposter syndrome. All these other people are more committed than me. I'm so lousy. If they only knew what an imposter I was, they would cut me out of this community. Anybody feel this? Basically, we feel like we have to choose between stick it out, but constantly berating ourselves for being so inauthentic, or disappear to be more authentic, but you're lonely. Both those options suck. Can I just be frank? Both those options suck. But if we think it is authenticity that will save us, that's, those are the only options. Authenticity is great. It is not an enemy. I love the age of authenticity that we've just talked about. But it will not save us from burnout. It can't be the only tool in our tool belt. So let's raise our heads above the ground of authenticity, have some grace on ourselves. We don't need to be perfectly authentic. And let's be encouraged that the problem is not ours as individuals. The problem is societal. It's not personal if you're trying to facilitate something and people just don't seem to commit. It's not personal, I promise you. Don't take it out on the, those people. There are immense forces beating them down. And it's not your fault if you just can't seem to break free from busyness. Have some grace with yourself. There are immense forces at work beating you down. Can we commit to not taking it personally and not taking it out on ourselves? Can we commit to that as a church? I feel like I'm at a wedding and I'm like, do all of us, if so, say we do. We do, yes, let's commit to that. There are immense forces at work, so don't give up. Let's trust together in the force of love beckoning us into sacred time where our burdens are lightened and our time is stabilized. We cannot instantly snap away our experience of burnout, but a keeping of sacred time over months, over years, over decades is transformational. Each time we re-enter sacred time, the God of resurrection after death, the God Jesus shows us, welcomes you every time, unconditionally, fully. You do not have to try hard, meet the demands and the burdens of modern life. You do not have to be perfectly authentic. You can be, frankly, terrible at being authentic, and this God will still welcome you and love you. You are loved. Can we trust that? So I think it takes experiencing that to really trust it. So let me pray for us in this space. If you would get comfortable in your seat, if you're watching online and you're, you know, like holding a phone in front of you and you realize, my shoulder hurts, let maybe just sit back, relax a little bit. (sighs) 
God, we are so grateful for the age that we live in, this age of authenticity that has allowed us to throw off burdens of duty and conformity that have hurt people, especially the marginalized, God. We are so grateful to live in the age of authenticity when those who can challenge the status quo have a voice to do so. Amen? Amen. We are so grateful to be in that time. And yet, God, I mean, we're just like every other people in the history of the universe. We cannot manufacture the good life for ourselves. And oh my goodness, do we feel exhausted sometimes just trying to be authentic. We feel exhausted trying to take care of ourselves because we're supposed to be good at self-care. God, free us from this cycle. May we feel now, like in our, in our bodies, may we feel loved. May we feel like we can admit to somebody today the most inauthentic thing about us, where we are just such a posturing poser. <laughs> we are such a hypocrite. And may we still feel loved, even if we admit that out loud to another human being. You love us. May it lighten our burdens to feel such love, unconditional love. May we enter our workspaces this week that may be burning us out with a renewed vision of the shape of a good life. May we feel like we are able to be critical of those things that demand us to grow and grow and grow and ascend and ascend and ascend forever. And may we feel trust when we recognize, oh, okay, I'm at the end of my mastery. I'm at the end of my authenticity. I'm at the end of my coolness. I'm just, I'm sort of in a valley, but God is here with me. God, would you gently encourage us wherever it is we are in the pursuit of living in sacred time that, that, that takes a while to affect us. <laughs> Wherever it is, we, maybe like today is the first day we are entering into sacred time ever or in years. Encourage us that yes, it won't snap away anything instantly, but we can stay here and experience an impact that will change us, will transform us in the best way. Help us to feel encouraged. Maybe we've been at this. Maybe we, we've, we've been at this for a little while. We've, we've changed our ways in some, some big way. Maybe the pandemic helped us. We really feel like we're living in a different time since the pandemic. God, show us the, the, the transformation that's happened already in us, the gift that that's been to us. And God, encourage us as as people who just so quickly default to having to do this ourselves, encourage us that we are not alone, that we are in this together with another group of people, people that we can get to know, people that we can rely on, people who can help enter into our negations and negate those negations. We thank you for being the God of resurrection after death. In Jesus' name, amen.